Word Radio On Demand, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Streaming live at wordradio.com. Welcome. You are listening to Evening Words. I'm your guest host for the week, Dara Lise Lyons, speaking now with Heather Lewis. Heather is the executive director of the Reuniting Family Bail Fund, a practitioner of participatory defense and a national participatory defense trainer. Welcome, Heather. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Happy to be here. <laughs> I'm happy to have you here. I would love if you could just share a little bit to how you got into this really important work, uh, reuniting families um, and working within the cash bail system. Can you talk a little bit about your journey here? Absolutely. Um, it, it was a journey that wasn't on my radar for sure. Um, I have been a servant leader in the nonprofit world for nearly 20 years. So um, my career spans from supporting survivors of domestic violence and their children um, when I started my own nonprofit, we're working with at-risk youth and moved on to um, fair housing and then on to community action where I, I've been the uh, program developer and, and grant writer. And um, in my most recent, uh, well, last nonprofit that I worked for was kind of like an umbrella organization. And there was a reentry program. And Mr. Herb Morris, rest his soul, is a phenomenal um, guide for a lot of the guys that are coming home from incarceration and helping them get reunited with their children and um, integrating back into society after having some serving, having served time um, incarcerated. And so when the um, chief public defender, Keir Bradford Gray, at the time introduced us to participatory or introduced Montgomery County, I yeah. should say, to the concept of participatory defense, uh, Mr. Herb was the only person that was interested in taking on such a task. Oh, and um, I was the grant writer and program developer at the time. And uh, myself and Adrian Aiken, who's the deputy director, uh, supported him wholeheartedly and, and took on the training and really learned this model and embraced this model, how we can really, um, as the founders of Debug in San Jose, California, describe it is balancing the power in the criminal legal system, mm -hmm. because historically, that power is definitely unbalanced. And it's, it's, it's ironic that they have the scales, right, for justice. And it's always tipped, it's never balanced. And, and that is a, a true sign of what actually happens in the courtroom, going through the court process, is that you, you, know, you have a defendant, you have the prosecutor, you got your defense attorneys, you've got the judge, and they're all on the same team, mm. except for the and the defendants on the opposite team. Right. Even alongside their their defense attorney, they're still on the opposite team. They're on the receiving end of all of this so-called justice. And um, once community got involved and community started to understand the dynamics mm. and how they could impact those dynamics with knowledge and experience and that collective knowledge of experience of other people that have gone through the criminal legal system, defendants became more educated and empowered to um, participate yeah. in their defense. And so that that kind of, it doesn't, you know, balance the scales, but it snatches back some of that power to the individual, to the family, and to the community that they can influence and impact out outcomes of their criminal cases. I mean, even at times to like exoneration and not guilty verdicts and, and you know, complete dismissals because we push back against the system and force them to work harder and find out the truth. Yeah. 
So I, that's that was in a nutshell how I, we how we landed here with participatory defense. Well, in the bail fund. So real quick. So Keir moved on to Philadelphia and um, Dean Beer became the chief. And as time went on, he he started recognizing or kind of knew for a little while there that there were some bail practices that weren't um, necessarily legal or in favor yeah. or constitutional for people. And he said, Heather, you, we need to start a bail fund. Mm -hmm. And in November of 2019, we started the bail fund. And I have so many questions <laughs> based on what you said. But like first, just like kind of breaking it down for me. So I assume when you say participatory defense that you mean people participating in their own defense process. But like, what yes. does that even mean? Because I sort of would have the conception that people would already be participating in their defense. But yeah, can you sort of share what that would look like and what that means. Absolutely. So yes, that is a misconception. So the criminal legal system has tons of misconceptions, right? Mm. We just assume, even though the, the saying is you're innocent until proven guilty, it's not that. Mm. It's you have to prove your innocence. Um, and so, you know, you hear that saying, you do the crime, you do the time. And it, it's a lot of times we have such a blind faith in the criminal legal system because they take oaths. They're swearing on the Bible. Well, okay. Yeah, <laughs> we got to move away from believing that people put their hand on the Bible and they're still telling the truth, mm -hmm. you know. And so tossing away that when people historically, people have just relied like we rely on the experts of our doctors. Right. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily probably prior to Google and all those things. We really didn't participate in our medical care. Mm -hmm. The doctors told us what they thought was wrong with us. They prescribed us medications and we did what they told us to do mm -hmm. and put Think of that concept, construct into the criminal criminal legal system. So now you have your defense attorney who is the expert. They're telling you what is best for you. They're giving you the remedy. And it's up to you to be like, OK, I'm going to do X amount of years or you don't need, you haven't even done the research to find out if the crime that you're allegedly accused of, if you're found guilty of, even carries that kind of sentence right. because we don't do our homework. And so that's when we say about people participating in their defense is that they need to do some research. They need to figure out what they're actually being charged of, um, what the sentencing guidelines are. And also, too, you know, we've heard of stacking charges and things like that. Like there's, um, you know, you have to figure out what you're culpable. Right. Of. What did you do? That, that charge, you got a list of, you know, 59 charges and you're like, I didn't do this, I didn't do that, I didn't yeah. do three, four, 10, 12, 18, whatever. You figure out, okay, what did you do, if anything? Yeah. If you didn't do anything, then fine, we'll support you on that as well. But if there's something that you did and you're facing it and we just encourage people to be authentic and true, tell their truth, mm -hmm. you know, and we support them, whatever that truth is. Yeah. And so we kind of guide them through that process and understanding what's happening next in the linear stages of the court process. So you're arrested, you're arraigned, you're preliminary hearing. And I know I'm speaking a lot of like these legalese, yeah. but this is what people don't understand. Right. And then imagine the anxiety of being threatened with prison time. Oh yeah. And you're supposed to be able to have, wrap your brain around all this stuff and make decisions, you know, within 15 minutes and, you know, do all these things that impact the rest of your life. Yeah. And it's everything's just happening so fast. Yeah. And so we help slow that process down so people can kind of digest and process and make um, educated decisions 
for themselves. Yeah. And I mean, if part of it is for people to be able to educate themselves and do some research, I mean, I know that's easier to do if you're not locked up, right? It's easier to have access Absolutely. to the internet or to be able to call people freely. And and so can you kind of talk about some of the inequities in the cash bail system and how people are being kept um, in, you know, uh, behind bars or, or remaining incarcerated where maybe they wouldn't have to or... Um, you know, and some of the unfairness of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it is disproportionately people of color, Mm -hmm. disproportionately poor people, disproportionately people that are suffering a mental health crisis, disproportionately people who have um, substance use disorders. Those are the folks, those vulnerable populations are what keeps the wheels of justice turning, Mm -hmm. right? Because they have situations or, or you know, that, that are reoccurring, you know, and they've criminalized those behaviors instead of treating them and, and getting them into a safe space where they reduce the amount of trauma, they reduce the amount of triggers and things like that. So they're less likely to have contact with the criminal legal system. Most of the charges are drug related, um, retail theft, um, you know, mental health, if they're trespassing or they get into a fight or something like that. And these folks are who are, we, our bail fund posts up to $5,000, okay. um, which for some is not a lot of money. When you think about bail and when they're citing people bail, you hear millions of dollars, you hear tens of thousands of dollars, $5,000 is our cap. And on average in 2022, our average bail that we posted was $500. Really? And these are our most vulnerable citizens that cannot afford their freedom. And the court system knows this. You know, a lot of times this is not the first time they've met this defendant. And so that they know that there's something going on, but they don't know what else to do or there's no other resources. I mean, Obviously, there's not enough resources for mental health or substance abuse, um, you know, home, you know, shelters and beds for the homeless. So prison is is the catch all. And unfortunately, it's our most vulnerable people. You're listening to Word Radio, 900 AM, 96.1 FM, streaming live on wordradio.com, Facebook Live, and the Word Radio app. I'm speaking with Heather Lewis, the executive director of the Reuniting Family Bail Fund, a practitioner of sorry, participatory defense and a national participatory defense trainer. Um, If you have questions for Heather, you can call us at 215-634-8065. Again, that's 215-634-8065. 8065. Um, Heather, I really appreciate you sharing, you know, the most vulnerable populations is how you framed it. And I think that there is a misconception, right? Sometimes that like, oh, people did something like they're, they're not vulnerable, right? The community is vulnerable and, and the community needs to be protected. But I think that's just a not true. And I think it's applied very inequitably based on the color of people's skin, based on someone's, you know, socioeconomic status, et cetera. And so kind of how do we work to reframe thinking so that people are not, um, you know, criminalized and dehumanized when, as as you say, maybe it's a, you know, it's a mental health issue or it's a, an addiction issue or something, and, and there needs to be more care and support as opposed to punishment. Right. And, and so... We 
the posting the bail is this is just one of the things that we do as an organization. Uh, like I said, we're practitioners of participatory defense. And so what that looks like is that we host month, uh, weekly meetings where we strategize with families. We help them, you know, get them educated. Um, and, and through, uh, through that process, we're also impacting their defense attorneys. Like, you know, when we first started in 2015 with participatory defense, some defense attorneys were really like apprehensive. They didn't want us involved. You know, we're not attorneys and we never proclaim to be attorneys. We don't want to be attorneys. We just want to be advocates for families so that they understand we can share our knowledge. This is what our, we've experienced ourselves going through, um, you know, the criminal legal process. And so just sharing that um, has started to shift the thinking and, and the approach that some um, defense attorneys take with us and with the families. And so now we're, we're doing that regularly going into court with people. So they recognize us that the judges are actually recognizing us and asking us, are we willing to either testify or, or um, vouch for an individual, help them get employment, help them get stabilized, help them, you know, make these connections that are supportive. Um, we've been working with Judge Duffy out of Colmar, who runs the DARA program, which is a diversion um, program. So if somebody has an addiction disorder and they're willing to go into treatment, we work with the the um the healthcare system, the DA mm. and their defense attorney to get them either in lieu of bail or we'll post the bail so that they can move on mm. uh into treatment instead of spending that time incarcerated because I mean the horror stories that we hear about women uh detoxing in car while incarcerated in front of male COs. I mean I can tell you horrific mm. stories about the things that happen to women while they're incarcerated and detoxing and trying to um maintain a sense of dignity, uh, you know, so through sharing, you know, having those meetings, we have a live biweekly podcast where we bring in guests that talk about their experiences and um, court watching um, episodes where we talk about what we've actually seen yeah. um, with our own eyes and, and heard with our ears in the courts and, and how the DAs speak to certain people's how that, you know, judges are falling asleep, if jurors are falling asleep. So just really trying to bring the attention to the to the masses, mm. our community, you know, so that they understand. And so now, you know, our court watch crew is starting to grow. People are learning to not be afraid. Mm. You know, people are really afraid of the criminal legal system because you're only involved. I used to say two reasons, but three reasons, whether you're a court actor, right? You're yeah. you're um law enforcement, lawyer, uh, police officer, judge, what have you. But then you're like, you're either a defendant or you're a victim mm. when you're involved in the criminal legal system. And nobody wants to be either. Right. So what other reason would people have to be engaged or involved or just say, ah, I got a day off, let me go down to the courthouse and watch some court cases. Yeah. There's really none. So we are really pulling on people to understand like, this is a system that's going unchecked. Mm -hmm. They have created their rules outside of the, the legal system. They do their own thing. They have relationships with each other. They're making deals, you know, on the golf course, over lunch, you know, about people's lives. Yeah. And, you know, the, the people, the masses don't understand that. They just don't, it just doesn't, not something that resonates with people. And so we really, when we, they start to hear these stories, they're like, oh my God, like I need to, I need to go and see for myself. Yeah. And that's where we're starting to see that shift. But not only there, but these judges are elected officials. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, we forget, you know, um, that we elect them at the district level. So in Montgomery County, there are 30 mm -hmm. district judges that assign this cash bail. So yeah. and we know nothing about them. Right. 
We know absolutely nothing. They campaign for whatever to get elected. But after that, you hear nothing. You don't see these commercials. You don't mm-hmm. get literature in the mail. You, you don't know who they are really. Right. And then with the Court of Common Pleas, once they're elected, they have a 10-year term. And then they're just kind of reappointed. Yeah. They don't have to run. They don't have to campaign. There's literally just check boxes. Do you want Judge Carpenter to re- be reappointed? Well, who's Judge Carpenter? Right. Who's Judge Wilheimer? Who's Judge Tolliver? Yeah. Who's Judge O'Neill? And these happen to be the names that were just on the recent um, 2023 November ballot. Right. And so it's like, I didn't know that they were up for reappointment. Like, how do we, you know, dive into that space so that we are educated voters? Right. You know, so it, this, it's deep. It is deep. And I think, you know, unless people are impacted by the system, which is a very traumatic thing, as you point out, most people are either on the defense side or um, have been victimized in some way. Right. Like that's a very traumatic, high stakes experience. But I think, you know, those of us that maybe aren't in those situations, it is incumbent upon us to take an interest. And one of the things with court watching, I know that just observing people's behavior can cause changes in that Mm -hmm. behavior. So can you talk about sort of how court watching has helped maybe help people behave right, like or act right, like at least uh, or act better, maybe? Like, can you talk a little bit about that? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, It it does. The dynamics is so incredible. Like there are times that we're sitting in court and it's, you know, we'll do, so there's court watching where we'll just watch random um, judges or courtrooms. Mm-hmm. And then there's court support where we're going with a family who's involved with participatory defense, mm-hmm. that they actually have a hearing and we're going and we're intentionally supporting that person. And so when we're doing court watching, I, I'll often sit there and I'll look around and I, I mean, on any given day, it could be a hundred percent, 95% of the people that are there addressing some type of legal issue are men and women of color. Mm. I mean, hands down, astronomically, it's just, so when we talk about, you know, this court system um, being like modern day slavery, when it's nothing but black and brown folks Mm. in that courtroom outside of the court actors, that's exactly what it looks like. You know, you've got the judge on the bench and you've got these people making decisions about black and brown people who don't have a voice. Yeah. And it's like, oh my gosh. So that that's one dynamic that I see when I'm sitting there as a court observer. But then as, you know, a court supporter, you know, the judges recognize because we we wear our, our we've got t-shirts, they got our mm-hmm. logos and things on it, and sweatshirts and stuff. So and we're there often enough and we see some of the same judges frequently that they know who we are. Yeah. They know that they're the defendant is gonna be well-versed, mm-hmm. understanding what's happening. Um, the defense attorney is going to understand that if they're working with the participatory defense hub, that we're going to be involved. This person's going to be pushing for certain things that, you know, if, if the, the defense attorneys can, are like, don't ask, don't tell. So if you're not asking for certain things, they're not going to tell you. Mm-hmm. They're going to do as little as possible to make as much money as possible, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, for themselves. Like we have a few attorneys that we work with that are really, really good. And they, you know, will put forth the energy and put forth the effort and really work to getting our clients or their families mm-hmm. the best outcome. But, you know, some of them that don't know us, that, that's mm-hmm. it's a money game. 
You know what I mean? You know, billable hours. So if you're pushing me to file a motion for dismissal or, or or rule 600 because the, you know the DA keeps you know pro- prolonging the case mm. and they don't think it's going to happen if I'm paying you they're like eh, they might push it off and keep pushing it off mm. but you know I'm paying you and so I know that you should be doing this mm. I can push for these things to happen even if I'm not paying you as a you know with a public defender yeah. like the more you know the more you can enforce the work to be done on your behalf you know, we empower people. You're literally fighting for your life. Mm. You know what I mean? Whether it's a year or five years, 10 years or life in prison, you are literally fighting for your freedom. And so we give, make sure that they are aware of all the tools mm. so that they can wield them as they see fit to get the best outcome. But yes, we've had judges invite us to testify mm. um, for our families to ensure that, you know, we will be there to support them and help them be as stable and make all of their court dates and things like that. We do not want to be a supervisory, you know, arm of the the courts. We're definitely not that, but we want to engage with the families to help remove any barriers to them um, satisfying their obligations to the court. Well, I think the example that you gave earlier in this conversation about like, um, kind of the medical community really relates yeah. because I know, you know, one of the things is people are less likely to advocate for themselves when they're in pain, right? When there's difficulty, mm-hmm. when they're confused, when the, when the stakes are high. And so I think Absolutely. the fact that you bring families into this is really important. I think, um, Heather, we're going to take a very quick um, commercial break. You're listening to um, a conversation with Heather Lewis. Heather is the executive director of the Reuniting Family Bail Fund. This is Dara Elise Lyons. You're listening to Evening Words. We're going to be right back and we're going to talk more about the family aspect of the uh, Reuniting Family Bail Fund. So stay tuned. You're listening to Evening Words on WURD, progressive black talk media. Welcome back to Evening Words on 900 AM, 96.1 FM, streaming live on wordradio.com, Facebook Live, and the Word Radio app. I'm your guest host, Dara Lise Lyons, having a fascinating conversation, an impactful conversation with Heather Lewis. Heather is the executive director of the Reuniting Family Bail Fund um, and a practitioner of participatory defense. Um, right before the break, Heather, we were speaking about sort of families and their role in the defense process and in supporting their loved ones. And so can you talk a little bit about um, kind of how you help families do that? And also maybe tell a story about a family that was impacted by your work. Absolutely. Um, so if we get a bail request and it's above our $5,000 cap, I will refer them to the participatory defense hub. Mm-hmm. So that way um, we can work with the family and, and try to get their loved one out, maybe through a bail motion or, you know, some other negotiation tactics as the case progresses. And so their loved one is incarcerated. So they are not able to personally attend that strategy meetings that we have every Monday. Mm-hmm. So the family will come. So they'll either, you know, appoint, a, you know, appoint person to come and, and kind of, um, be that uh, liaison between their loved one and us in the court system. And, and we try to empower them to, you know, we don't do the work for them. It's not a service. Yeah. And so, you know, we empower the families to make communications with the attorneys, get power of attorney if they need to, if they're needing to get medical records and things like that. So all these things, because we are a tool for the defense team, mm. you know, because they don't, they're overworked. They have, you know, a heavy caseload. And, and, you know, just even with doing 
I don't want to say the investigation, but getting some of that supporting documentation like medical records and and um, any other diagnoses that may um, be beneficial to the outcome of their yeah. case. We can help the family manage that and figure out a way to get that for the attorney. And so um, the other thing is like our, our weekly meetings um, are very therapeutic. You know, it's community. You're not, you know, the system is designed to isolate and shame people yeah. and they don't want to be in the open with talking about maybe um, one of the worst days of their loved one's life. Yeah. And so it, it, you know, people want to not talk about that. And we create a safe space for people to come and be in community and be with other people who have similar experiences, um, grandmothers who are taking care of their grandchildren who are, are finding themselves in situations. And so they're able to connect and and really um, be a support system as they navigate this, like we keep saying, a very traumatic and oppressive and um, racially biased system. So, um, and, and we don't discriminate. We, we will help anyone that comes um, to us with a case um, and we will support that because it's, it's not for us to determine guilt or innocence. It's really to help people navigate the system and get the best outcome for their, their loved one. And if that means that it's going to be um, a lengthy sentence in a treatment facility, yeah. then that's more appropriate than a, a lengthy sentence in prison. Um, so things like that. So the families, it, it's really um, therapeutic. And, and that's how our hub grows, because once, you know, their loved one has satisfied their obligation, um, you know, they stay coming to the meeting so that they can support other families so that we don't lose that that knowledge because, you know, um, the folks aren't staying. The families kind of stay and, and want to help other families so that they don't feel that isolation. Yeah. Oh, that's so important. And I and I really appreciate what you said about the system being so shaming and isolating because I know that to be true. And I, you know, and I think even just, you know, when we're talking about the financial shame associated with perhaps not being able to pay, like I know people can be caught up in the system for as little as $77, you know, they can't pay like 70 bucks and, and they can't get out. They can't be with their families. So can you talk a little bit about, um, yeah, like what that even is? Cause I was so surprised to, to learn about that. Yeah, so Montgomery County is unique in in a way that they have um, coded detainers. And that is if someone has was on probation or parole or has an open case somewhere, that $77 is that indicator. And sometimes um, $77 is the only thing that is holding a person hostage pre-trial, right? And so you have to, it's, it's telling of so many things, right? Um, an individual doesn't have $77, you know, and it's like, how do you not have $77? Well, I was a single mom um, for a very long time, you know, when my kids were younger and $77 could pay my electric bill or my water bill or, you know what I mean? Certain things I'm talking like 23 years ago, (laughs) but you know, it's $77 just doesn't seem like a lot of money, but in the grand scheme of things, there's people that don't have 77 cents. You know, and that that's a toll charge. So that's what I've kind of termed it now is because they cannot move on to the next phase, either their freedom or the next phase of the court process. If they've got another case in another county that they will sit in Montgomery County until they pay that seventy seven dollars. Doesn't matter if the charges are dismissed or the case like they cannot continue through the court process until that's posted or until something happens. You know, if there's, you know, 
prison, you know, jail, this system, people get forgotten, mm. you know, and if you don't have family advocating for you, your case is not going to be heard as quickly as if there are people looking for you. And so that's the importance of family and advocacy. But, you know, with mental health and substance use, you know, families, you know, fall apart and families get estranged and, and you burn bridges and you lose trust. And, okay. and so all of these things, it's like, well, I don't want that person coming back to me. Like, what's they, where are they going to go? What are, you know, so there's a lot of questions. Um, and so when they the court system knows what they're doing when they assign seventy seven dollar bail, I mean, as little as twenty five dollar bail, you know, they know that they don't have anyone that will post that for them. And and time is money. The longer you sit incarcerated, they're getting paid. The court system, our taxpayer dollars are paying for people to sit in incarceration, you know, and it takes significantly more money to incarcerate an individual versus to educate an individual or even house an individual. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's just telling of our system that it's, it's um, we take the most expensive route that is the least effective to, you know, try you know look like we're helping people or, or in the auspice of safety. Like, you know, we talk, we absolutely, we are for a safe community. Um, but incarcerating people and traumatizing people and, and forcing them to take medications or detox without appropriate medications oh, yeah. is not creating a safer community. You're, you're damaging people and, and further traumatizing them. So when they are released, they are so far back um, from where they began uh, that it takes a lot more resources to kind of get them whole again. Oh, yeah. Well, and the impact on families. I mean, I would have to I should probably look up some statistics, but I, I read that, um, you know, the children of uh, incarcerated fathers specifically, I think the study that I was looking at are more likely to get caught up in the system. Right. And so Absolutely. I think there's that element too, that it is the person, but it's also ev everyone around them, the whole support system, everyone that, that looks to them as an example or as a, you know, source of support or love mm -hmm. or whatever. So I, I mean, it's, yeah, the implications, there's such a negative domino effect. Absolutely. And, that, and that's one of the tools that we use. It's called a social bio packet. And, you know, like I said, the system is really just designed to, highlight um, an individual's weaknesses or, or highlight the, you know, the bad choices that they made or the worst decision of their life. And with the family and community involvement, we're able to amplify the human mm. being, yeah. you know, and who they are to the community, who is loved by them, who they take care of, who they take to therapy, who they pick up after school, who they're, you know, volunteering with or coaching football or, you know, all of these things that are going on in an individual's life. That's what we bring to the forefront with the social bio packet that, you know, you're taking a father away from his, his children. You're taking a provider away from the family. You're taking, you know, a caregiver away from, mm -hmm. you know, his mother or father or, you know, an elderly or sickly family member. Like you are literally when you remove an individual from a household, you are literally disrupting and destabilizing an entire family unit. Yeah. It's not just that one person that gets um upended. It's the entire family is disabled. What's the emotional impact of this work on you? And I ask that in like the broadest, <laughs> the broadest sense. Like, I, I mean, I would imagine there's a, a whole roller coaster of feelings, but yeah. Can you talk about sort of how you're impacted by this work? The, um, well, self-care is, is very, very important to me. So I, I, I like to think that I am 
I'm good at self-care, but I'm also like, it, it does. This work is heavy. Um, it is emotional. Um, you know, it definitely has its highs and lows because not every case turns out you know, the way we want it. We yeah. do understand that not every case is going to mean that our loved one is coming home, that there yeah. is some culpability and there are consequences um, to certain behaviors. So um, we full heartedly understand that. We full heartedly understand that um, the system will continue to exploit mm -hmm. the fact that nobody's watching and that nobody listens because, oh, they're criminals or they're, they're black people or they're poor people or they're addicts or they're, you know, they're crazy folks. Like they're, they're all these adjectives that they use to describe people that are in the system, except human beings. Mm. They don't describe them as, oh, this is a human being. There's all these other adjectives. And so it's easy to dismiss, um, you know, the fact that, and I'll, and you asked for a story and I'm going to tell you my very personal story. My son um, has a parole violation and they said he was going to give him a six month hit. And that means he's going to have to do six months back upstate. But the caveat is they assigned him two four month programs that he needs to complete before he can be released. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Those two programs don't have any openings. So mm -hmm. he's on a wait list mm -hmm. to get into that program. That program is four months long. So if we just started, if you're only a month into the four month program that just started that he can't get into, that means he's got three months time. That, that's at least seven months oh, no. before he can get into a program. Oh. And so the six months that the hit that he's going to get, he'll end up doing a year or, or, you know, 16 months oh. if we don't push to make sure that he gets into a program within that six month period so that he can, you know, be out on that six month hit. Or that they waive so that, that requirement system, or whatever. Yeah, it, exactly. That's a requirement. So if he can't get it, if it takes him a year to get into that program or if they allow him to have take them simultaneously, you know, what would be six months can easily turn into a year. Mm. He's got a two and a four year old. He's a provider. Yeah. He's a son. He's a brother. He's a dad. Yeah. He's a partner. He had a job, he had an apartment, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, all of these things. I'm talking like, do we keep your cell phone on? How do, do we keep paying your cell phone bill? Right. These are like all the things that you don't think about. Like, do we, do we keep paying your car insurance? Like, do like, you know, how, how do we, you're going to lose your apartment. Okay. Um, so how do we get your things? You know what I mean? Yeah. When we're talking about the impact on families, I have to move him out of his apartment, oh, you know? So it, it's, it's, it's the impact that is is so, like you said, the ripple effect. It extends so far beyond just, oh, you did this and I'm going to lock you up. Yeah. You know, the punitive is, is so devastating on so many levels. Um, you know, and, and oftentimes, you know, when we're talking about families of color, it's often a single mom yeah. or a grandmother yeah. or a sister mm. that this, I don't want to say burden, but that this situation falls on. Right. You know, and it, there's not too many people that we can call on because, again, that stigma. Oh, well, he, he, he knew better. He shouldn't have been doing that. You know, all these other things come attitudes come into play and forgetting that he's a son. He's a brother. He's a father. He's a partner. You know, he's a human being who has value and worth and, and, and is loved by people, you know, and that gets lost like that is so far down on the on the list of things that are important yeah. um when it should be the other way around
Well, and you do this work, but were you able to kind of put your advocate hat on in those moments or is it because I, you know, I know when you're in it, it's and you're impacted, it must be a very different experience than when you're able to kind of like come at it as an out with an outside perspective. Yeah, I I definitely had I had the mama advocate hat on, I guess. (laughs) Okay. It was a little bit of both because like when I'm just an advocate, how I'm speaking now, I can speak. But when I was in mama advocate mode, I was ready to beat somebody somebody behind. I was ready to do a whole lot of things. I was like, you don't know who I am and this and that. You know what I mean? You know, and and sometimes they could just hang up the phone. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and it's like weird. And And you have to be mindful because there's consequences on the inside. Like if I push too hard, you know, it could be a retaliation towards mm-hmm. him. And they'd be like, we just gonna put him at the bottom of this list. Yeah. That four months that you think you're going to get in this program. Yeah, good luck. You know, and so we have it's a really scary and unfortunate balance, um, you know, trying to navigate that um, on, on this side. Like in the beginning, when we're fighting through it, like we, it just it's all hands on deck. No holds bar. We're fighting for our lives. But now that you're back in the system and we kind of understand you know, the web, mm-hmm. it is, it becomes much more delicate and strategic. Um, and sometimes it's just like, just put your head down, do your six months and get home and never go back mm. kind of thing. So it is, it's extremely difficult um, and emotional. And again, I do this work. It does not take away the shame that I feel, the disappointment, the sadness, the trauma, just because we do this work, it doesn't change that. Yeah. Um, and, and we've had, you know, as a trainer, you know, we we ask the, the folks that are wanting to start a hub to see if they have families that they can kind of, you know, run through this process that we can practice with. Yeah. And oftentimes it's the people that want to do this work that have the family members that we're talking about. Mm. And the dynamic is that sometimes we're so close to the problem that we can't um, use our brain creatively to see different avenues of how we can support this person. All we know are the roadblocks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just in a recent training, we were successful because she was like, oh my God, I never thought about that. I never thought about just, you know, sending him books on this because he doesn't have access to the library. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can send him books. I can send him articles. I can send him, you know, um, newspaper reports or what have you. And so it's just, again, that the the power of the collective community um, to be able to brainstorm and resource and strategize on how to support a loved one who's incarcerated. Yeah. You're listening to Evening Words. This is a conversation with Heather Lewis, the executive director of the Reuniting Family Bail Fund. So Heather, like speaking of the collective community, what can folks do if maybe they don't have a loved one or relative who's um, experiencing, you know, interactions with the criminal uh, legal system, but like, how can people get involved? How can they help? How can they support? Well, for one, they can go to www.bailfundmontco.org. And we have an updated website that has volunteer opportunities. It has obviously the donation opportunities. Um, if you want to be a court watcher, um, court supporter, um, we, we are a little protective of our weekly meeting space because it, it's not, um, it's not court TV. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's very sensitive. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, we do have some people that work in this, in this space. 
that will come and observe and, and you know, see how they can kind of or, or their work may intersect or, you know, we have some post-conviction people that kind of, you know, after that work with appeals and things like that. Um, or the juvenile system will have some folks that may say, hey, how can you know we get uh, support from your organization, you know, in the juvenile space? So we'll have some kind of um, guests, you know, to learn more about how we can partner. Um, so but the court watching, the court support, um, fundraising, obviously, um, this is uh, thankfully I'm a, a grant writer. That was my skill set. Um, but we really, really need the community support. It's a little different. So there's bail funds all across the country. There's two bail funds in in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, but that, that's a more forgiving environment. Also, Montgomery County is not so forgiving. It's not so understanding. It's not so um, ready for this reform that we're bringing. Um, they're not ready to face the fact that this system has been operating the way it has forever. Yes. Until now, because we are the only organization um, impacting the system in the way that we do. Um, so really, yeah, just hitting up uh, us up on our website. We have um, uh, a biweekly podcast that we yeah. do. So if, if you want to be a guest, you can be a guest. If you have a um, court case that you've witnessed or a family member that went through a, a court process and you want to talk about it, we're happy to have you as a guest on the show. Um, so yeah, there's, there's lots of opportunity, but the one thing is that we really, really need the community support to be able to continue to post the bail and the, the freedom for our most vulnerable citizens. Um, you know, sometimes there's restrictions on our grants and things like that, but, um, you know, like I said, the, the, the cheapest one was $25. Yeah. So for $25, you can possibly secure somebody's freedom and have them reunited. And we use the term family loosely. Family doesn't have to be blood relatives. Right. It could be, you know, your homeless, unhoused person that you kind of take turns, you know, protecting each other while you're unhoused on the street. You know, they become your family. You know, your family is who you make it, who you love, um, who you can trust. Um, so it's just being able to bring folks back to their people, the people that love them, that's going to protect them. They can protect each other. Um, and so, yeah, it's just reuniting family. Yeah. You're listening to Word Radio, 900 AM, 96.1 FM, streaming live on wordradio.com, Facebook Live, and the Word Radio app. We're going to take a very short break and then be right back with Heather Lewis. I've got some follow-up questions. And if you have a question, feel free to call us at 215-634-8065. We'll be right back. You're listening to Evening Words on WURD, Progressive Black Talk Media. Welcome back to Evening Words. I'm your guest host, Dara Lise Lyons, having a conversation with Heather Lewis, the executive director of the Reuniting Family Bail Fund, a practitioner of participatory defense. I'm going to say that correctly the next time. And a national <laughs> participatory defense trainer. Um, right before the break, Heather, you were speaking about, you know, the people who love us and the value of the people who love us and defining that as family. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, bit about love bonds. Yes, thank you. So, and, and that's exactly um, how we came up with the, the that term love bonds because we determine and define who our love bonds are. Um, you know, we, we, we've let systems and other people dictate to us what words mean and what family means and what love means. And, and so love bonds is um, our signature event um, 
was our first fundraiser. Our goal was to bail out our first male and female by Valentine's Day of um, 2020. Mm-hmm. And then we had COVID and all that craziness yeah. happened. So um, the following year, we created Love Bonds as our signature fundraiser. We have it on Valentine's Day every year. Um, it is for, and we didn't want to discriminate. We were like, okay, is it, is this a couples thing? Is it, you know, traditional, like all, all, there's all these different love bonds mm-hmm. and, and we didn't want to dictate to people what that meant. And, and so we wanted you to bring whoever you loved and it didn't matter what kind of love it was. If it was your friend or your brother, or your sister, or, you know, significant other, whatever it was. Um, we did not want to exclude anyone, um, from the event. We wanted everyone to express um, their and share who their love bonds were. And so um, it has evolved. It was it started out as um, it's a catered dinner. Um, I think it's the, a, a no brainer to have it on Valentine's Day because people are looking for things to do on Valentine's Day. Um, we have it at a secured location. You don't have to wait in line like it's yeah. a catered event. It's private. Um, you don't have to worry about paying, you know, $150 for an overpriced meal and you get entertainment and, and all of those things. And it's the safe space and it's just a really good time and, um, affordable. And and we always have different surprises. We've had some comedians. Um, and again, we use our platform. So I've had young people that have grown up with my children that are now being our, our music musicians and, and comedians and and just doing things and they're giving back to their community. I'm so so proud of the again the love bonds that I have with my extended um, children that they too now are giving back to the organization, giving back to their community, wanting to you know give their gift and, and share it with younger folks so that they have. Um, outlets and, and goals and things that they can see for their future. So Love Bonds has definitely been a platform. Um, my son is a musician and his music is all throughout our promotional materials and on our videos and and even um, with Purely Speculation. That is my son's song. Um, so we, we try to utilize it and create platforms and safe spaces for all folks that have been um, touched by the criminal legal system, mental health, um, you know, substance use. We we just try to you know give them a something to hold on to and a way to believe in themselves. We have um, an up, we're going to be producing an uh, an art exhibit of um, artists that are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated artists. There's some phenomenal artwork yeah. that's coming out of prisons that's just phenomenal. And and we just again want to create a platform and space for. Um, those that are coming home from incarceration that can land safely. Mm, I love so love bonds. Uh, February fourteenth, twenty twenty four. Save the date. Um, most likely, I, we haven't raised the ticket prices. Tickets are sixty five dollars a person, one hundred thirty dollars for a couple. And um, you know, just stay tuned. Keep an eye out on our website um, www.bailfundmonco.org. Um, to secure your love bonds tickets. We were sold out the last two years. So hopefully we'll do that again. If you want to be a sponsor, we have some sponsorship packages that we're putting together. Um, and it's just, you know, all around good. It's a good time and for a good cause. Yeah. And I really appreciate, you know, I think holidays are also can be really rough for people on both sides of that equation, rough for people who are separated from their families, rough for for family members. And so, you know, as we think go into this holiday season, I, I like I think about that and what people's experiences of that um, must, must be. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Well, thank you so much, Heather, for joining us. This has been a really rich and rewarding conversation. Um, I know you just gave your website information, but is there anything else you want to shout out or share, like any way that, you know, people can can get in touch with you? I know we mentioned the podcast. We mentioned going to the website, um, you know, donating, uh, you know, reaching out for support um, and, and community. But but. I, I think, you know, if you want to give that information again, it'd be great for folks to get a pen and write it down and um, and follow for up. For sure, for sure. Yeah. And, and on our, um, I'm not sure where, we have a link tree that has like all of our um, <laughs> access points yes, yes. somewhere. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're supporting families through criminal justice reform. We post bail up to $5,000. It doesn't matter um, what the charges, what the, you know, demographics are, if freedom is affordable, we'll, we'll, we'll do it for them. Um, and, and really just advocating for the reform of the criminal legal system here in Montgomery County and across the tri-state area, like our participatory defense is not restricted to Montgomery County. Our bail funds are. Mm -hmm. So I know we've, you know, had to get approval to post bail in Bucks and, and, um, Philadelphia and Delco, but, if they're willing to create a line item, we'll support them there too. Or if there's organizations that want to create one, we're certainly here to offer some guidance. Um, but again, if you want to support the Reuniting Family Bail Fund, you can go to www.bailfundmonco.org. Well, thank you so much, Heather, for agreeing to speak with me, for bringing your personal and your pers uh, professional experiences to this conversation. Um, you're listening yeah. to Word Radio on 900 AM 96.1 FM streaming live on wordradio.com, Facebook Live, and the Word Radio app. We're going to take another brief break and then we'll be back with our next guest. And Heather, thank you again. It was a great conversation. You've been listening to Word Radio On Demand. Listen live at 96.1 FM, 900 AM, and online at wordradio.com. 